This is Cinephile. This is incredible. One of the best actors alive here on the studio, Billy Bob Thornton. Great to see you, man. The point of good acting is that you're supposed to be real. Be real. Great to have here on Cinephile Ice Cube, my new best friend. Yeah, yeah, man. Here's the man himself, Robert De Niro. Who can tell what a reaction will be to a film that nobody knows? Viggo Mortensen. It's one of those movies that when it finishes, you go, now what's going to happen? Big guest, Mark Wahlberg. Ted was one of those pivotal moments in my career, like Boogie Nights, where, you know, the subject matter just seems so ridiculous and absurd. Yet, when reading the script, you know, you never want to put it down. Cinephile. Cinephile. The Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. Oh, man. I just got finished saying how you have to be on point vocally as Jim Brackmeyer, and I completely punted that one. Detroit was directed, written, produced, shot, and edited by white creatives who do not understand the weight of the images they hone in on with an unflinching gaze. A damning review of Detroit. That's from Angelica Jade Bastian of RogerEbert.com. One of the films that we'll be reviewing this week on Cinephile. Also, we'll be talking a little Logan Lucky, Steven Soderbergh, back out of retirement, and Norman, which, although I've mentioned in the past, I don't like watching movies on flights. I had a cross-country flight from L.A., popped it in. Surprisingly good. Good to, back, uh, good to be back here on Cinephile. Those are still reeling from how bad the, uh, the strep throat experience was. The, the, real, the real downside of all this is that if I had really been unable to perform, Dan Sanzik would have been Cinephile last week. And here's where it would have got amazing, is that there would have been somebody who had never listened before who would have given us a chance and said, the hell, Virk's never there. This guy, Dan's great. Let's 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 sign Dan Stanzik to a five-picture deal. Get it done. Oh, get out of here. You fill in on radio shows all the time that don't have your name on them. Somebody would have been led astray and said, all right, whoever the sad Dan Virk is. So Someone like would have been Stanzik. impressed. <laughs> a lot of people would have been disappointed, but I was prepared. I was ready to go. I felt bad because I, on the way back, I said, oh, my God, I missed your Scorsese story because you had prepared for that. So this week on Cinephile, Dan Stanzik is going to give his Scorsese story because after last time I had a battle with strep throat, he had prepared in case he needed to Wally Pip me. He also had a review of Atomic Blonde, which we didn't get to. I blew through that. So if you still have that written review of Charlize Theron. I got it ready. Okay, great. Atomic Blonde as well. My thanks to Brian Sussman, the entire crew from Podcast Spotlight. They treated me wonderfully. I was in Williamsport for a week and then flew right to Los Angeles for the premiere of this movie called Last Rampage. It stars Robert Patrick, Heather Graham, Bruce Davison, uh, the late John Hurd, among others. It's a southern bait crime film, shades of uh, One False Move, a little bit of Hell or High Water. So I got to watch that on Saturday and um, did a little introduction to the film, did a Q&A afterwards, got to meet Robert Patrick. He was terrific. Heather Graham, unfortunately, not there, but uh, Patrick's awesome. We, um, what we're going to do is it's a live cinephile. So the movie's actually opening September 22nd on in theaters and VOD. And that's when we'll put the pod out September 18th. That's what Brian's asking. So basically, we did the Q&A afterwards, so we'll put that out as a cinephile that week of and hopefully draw up some interest for it. Uh, they also did a last rampage of the podcast on Apple you can check out. Um, for the purposes of the Q&A, obviously, they want to be just focused on the movies. So they have the director there and the other stars in the movie. But off air, I got to ask Robert Patrick. I said, listen, I just... I could ask you so much, you know, the stuff you've done with Mangold. Of course, he was in Copland. He was in Walk the Line. He played uh, Johnny Cash's father. Um, my brother's a big fan of his because of X-Files, which I don't know his work as well there. Uh, T2, I was able to sneak in a question in the Q&A because there's a T2 3D out now, which apparently is amazing. And Robert Patrick said that they've cleaned it up a little bit. James Cameron's done some adjustments. So T2 3D, I can't imagine how crazy that is. But off here, I did say to Robert as he's getting mobbed by everybody, I said, hey, this, give me a Sopranos story. He was unreal. There's an episode of The Sopranos where Robert Patrick plays like a, a sporting goods owner, and his kid is friends with AJ, Tony's son, and then he gets locked up in the high-stakes gambling game, and Tony's trying to tell him, hey, back out. But Patrick said, oh, I'm good for it, I'm good for it, Tony. And eventually it's a disaster. So I said to him, just tell me everything about it. He said, well, David Chase called me, and he goes, I've got a role for you. Nobody would think of you because they always think of you as the T-1000. So uh, you're like this guy who's in way over his head when it comes to gambling. You're going to get slapped by Jimmy Gandolfini. <laughs> Robert Patrick said, sign me up. Can't wait. So uh, he was pretty happy, I think, to be a part of the Sopranos, and it was great to see him. Cool guy. Shows up, Dodgers hat, glasses ready to go. He actually threw out the first pitch for the Dodgers game on Sunday. So once again, the film is Last Rampage, and thank you to Brian Sussman. They had like a really nice uh, marquee there. They had Cinephile promoted, gave away some T-shirts. So it was very, very cool. Also, with college football about to begin, my man Joy Galloway and I got to be on set for a Chick-fil-A commercial, which is going to debut this week. And let me tell you something. If you watch college football on ESPN, 
you are going to be sick of me in Galloway because I have been assured, especially with the outrageous sum of money that they paid us, that this commercial is going to be on all the time. And not only on ESPN when Joey and I will be doing our thing along with our friend Jesse Palmer, but apparently it's, it's going to be on CBS as well for all these SEC games. So just get ready for a lot of Virk and Galloway pumping up Chick-fil-A. It was great to be on set. Our director was terrific. It looks a lot like Bobby Valentine. Every time you do a take, he'd say, outstanding, now try it again, which Joey couldn't stop laughing. But I said, no, I like this. I like the fact he's a, a positive reinforcement kind of guy. Whatever the take was. So it would say, I think my first line was, all right, let's get you caught up to date on Florida and Alabama. He'd go, all right, great ad nail. Let's try it again a little faster. I'm like, And I already talked fast. So I'm like, all right, let's get you caught up to date Florida and Alabama. Go, okay, ridiculously fast. Three, two, action. All right, let's get you caught up to date Alabama, Florida State. Like, okay, now really slow, painfully slow. And action. Let's get you caught to date. Florida and Alabama. Okay, good. Excellent. Try it again. Let's hit Alabama a little harder. Three, two, and action. This is how we're doing it. So it was a big, being shot out of a cannon, but I loved it because he was not messing around. This is not Kubrick's 73 takes. He's just like, boom, boom, boom. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. So uh, Joey and I had no details. Hadn't been on a, on a movie set or a commercial set in so long. It was a little bit... Uh, a little bit, just, just a little bit, uh, a veneer of espionage and intrigue. Cause it's like information will be given as it comes. I'm like, all right. So we just fly in there at like 6 a.m. call time, 6.45 pickup. We'll, we'll, we're taking you to a warehouse. <laughs> from there, information will be given. You'll get the script, you'll make up hair, et cetera. So thankfully we went from there, but we were wrapped by lunch. That's when the cows came. Literally, Joey and I go eight to 12 lunch and then they actually had cows. So listen, you're going to see the commercial by the time you probably hear this podcast. So look forward to that. But it was cool. I just asked the director, can I just sit in the director chair a little bit? He said, sure. So we threw in a few tweets of people actually thinking I was directing the commercial. <laughs> but it was fun just to be in the chair and to be on that set. It was really cool and a lot of fun. Also, thanks to my friend Mike Bonzani. There's uh, very few bigger supporters of this pod than Bonds, along with Rob Lemley and Mike Diesenhoff, who, by the way, are sitting in today. We have people paying thousands of dollars to sit in via the GBV experience, but Dees and Lem are active supporters of the pod, so they're hanging out here today. But Bonds is unbelievable. Bonds said to me, because you've got to categorize Cinephile. There's so many times people say to me, what did you give a review of this film, et cetera? In the past, I would placate them and write back, but as Dan now knows, every time I just write back full review on Cinephile. So somebody will say, you know, what did you think of um, Suicide Squad? And I'll say, well, full review on Cinephile. Like, you just got to go look it up and find it. I'm not going to keep writing back to each individual person. I'm flattered that anybody would even want my opinion on movies in the first place, but obviously I can't keep up. So, Bonds, you need to have a space. Everyone can go see your movies. You know, Roger, you had a yearbook, so you can just go and find out your movies. So he's created something called The Cinephile, C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E. I forwarded it to Dan and Peach and a senior boss. He said they're going to put it somewhere. Bonds went through, like, this spent him hours upon his usual day job as a senior researcher at ESPN. There's, like, 250 reviews of movies, books, plays that I've done. And he's like, you're, you're quite active uh, with those Maple Leafs. So I believe the average rating, as you know, my Maple Leaf scale is out of four Maple Leafs. The average review of a movie I've given is 3.1. Now, Bonds pointed out, he goes, going through all your movies, I mean, most of the movies are highly rated. Because at times I was looking at what they were on Rotten Tomatoes. Said, you're not watching a lot of junk. You're not watching... Uh, Halloween 4 or whatever. So he goes, you know, I, I think that it's a little bit skewed. Your average rating is 3.1. I don't think you're a generous critic, but I think the movies you're seeing are at a different level than most people's movies. I, I don't necessarily. I think you are a generous critic. Yes, yeah, you know, Greg Collier, producer of baseball tonight, he thinks everything I give to Maple Leafs. I said, what do you mean? He goes, you give everything to Maple Leafs. I go, what are you talking about? I gave like, I go, I, he goes, you don't crush anything. I said, Suicide Squad was one. Um, the movie that we reviewed recently was Sean yeah, but, Penn. but those are aberrations. Normally, when we have a guest in studio and you review their movie, you give that a little bump. But whenever it's a Scorsese okay. film, it's a little bump. Well, hang on a second. Whenever so, De Niro's in it, it's a little bump. There's been one Scorsese film since we've done the podcast, which is Silence. Hands yeah, would you, give it? would you give it four Maple Leafs? Right. Was it deserving? Hey, Probably out of, not. Out of 250 movies, one review of a Martin Scorsese movie is going to change everything? No, it's a list of like 25. Yeah, Hands of Stone. De Niro, the comedian. De Niro wasn't here in person. Okay, so two movies. That's what I'm saying. You have a a De Niro Scorsese bias. It's not like I saw Wind River. I just like Jeremy Renner. It's not like we we pumped up Wind River for that. I don't think that's accurate. I don't think I'm a generous critic. Because Howard Bryan, in fact, the other day, tweeted me back and said, no, what a rare positive review. Because I gave a positive review of, I think, Detroit. And Howard goes, oh, a rare positive review. Normally you hate everything. So... I don't know. Maybe Howard Bryant's probably not listening to much Cinephile, but he is an active follow on Twitter. He's a big Hitchcock fan, so check out Howard Bryant on Twitter. But regardless, we'll get Bonds to put up Cinephile at some point if you want to see all my movies in the way that they're ranked. As always, we're on iTunes. You can rate and review. I rank the movies out of four Maple Leafs. You can find um, 
Those uh, ratings are out of five stars, and that's how we kind of keep alive. Also, I mentioned last time, it was so nice that the people sent me some free DVDs. Rick Passmore, friend of the podcast, a big Dario Argento fan. I should have known he loves horror movies. He made a horror movie himself, so we're going to pass along those DVDs to him. And Bob Mackowitz, an old buddy of mine from Toronto, said, you've got to talk about King of Comedy because you love that movie. And, of course, Jerry Lewis passed away, and it was nice to see all the tributes to him. Everybody knows in France they love Jerry Lewis. It's always been like a running gag. It's like, yeah, the, for some reason, the, the French think he's like a genius, whereas everybody in America is like, yeah, I, okay, nutty professor. And, of course, he's raised a ton of money for muscular dystrophy in his telethon. But King of Comedy, if you haven't seen it, of course, I've discussed it on Scorsese Stories. It's my favorite picture of Jerry Lewis's, and it's because it's not a comedy. He actually, it's a rare, straight, dramatic performance from him. He plays Jerry Lankford, who is a talk show host of something like The Tonight Show. And he's a guy who's very funny when he's on camera, but off camera, he just wants to be left alone. He's quiet. He's private. He's lonely. Uh, you know, may have been based a little bit on Johnny Carson, but Lewis is great in it. And then, of course, De Niro plays this crazed fan, this obsessive, who wants to be on the show. And he wants to be best friends with Jerry Lankford. And he has these moments of delusion. And eventually, he, he goes so far in thinking that he's a member of Jerry's crew, even though he doesn't know Jerry. He thinks he's a part of the show. Uh, eventually, Jerry has to chastise him. There's a great scene where basically De Niro and his girlfriend break into Jerry Lewis's house. And eventually, he banishes him. And then De Niro takes matters into his own hands, kidnaps him, holds him hostage while he gets his dream of being on the show for one night. So if you've never seen King of Comedy, I encourage you to check it out. There's a great review from Jonathan Rosenbaum, who wrote for one of the Chicago papers. And he said one of the reasons it's so good is that Jerry Lewis no, he played the child in his movies. This time, he's playing the adult. And De Niro, who always played so many adult roles, this time he's playing the child. So it was a really smart way of looking at the movie. And um, Scorsese has often joked in self-deprecating fashion that people did not like the movie. He said he was going out with his friends, Jay Cox, who's the screenwriter uh, also of Silence and the Age of Innocence. And he said, me and Jay were going out for New Year's Eve, and they, they were watching entertainment tonight. They said, the worst movie of the year, King of Comedy. And he's like, great. And this was coming off of Raging Bull, which was obviously an enormous a triumph with critics and, you know, fiscally did okay. But King of Comedy, now, years later, people realize just how ahead of its time it was, not only a reflection of celebrity culture, but also anticipating what would happen now is, you know, the Kardashians just celebrate their 10-year anniversary, and you see so many shows and moments of people celebrating themselves and hero worship. King of Comedy from Jerry Lewis is an absolute beauty. On that note, I watched this film, Norman, and there's many reasons why you watch a movie by the way, guest coming up, Namdi Asamoah. I talked about Crown Heights last time, independent film of which he's a producer and co-star of. Yes, the former Eagles and Raiders cornerback. He's going to be our guest. He was also on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. was excellent there. So I'm going to talk to him about his new film, how he's gone from football towards movies. Michael Keaton, thanks to our friend Mark Simon, giving us some stats from, from the research department on Michael Keaton. So he's going to be our actor's showcase, also our streaming suggestions. And like I mentioned, Dan's going to give us a Scorsese story, which he feels confident that I know of. But if I don't, I'll be even more floored by that. Oftentimes when you watch a movie, there's different rationale for going to see it. Easiest one is an actor. You like the star, you go see the movie. Guys like me maybe like the director. Okay, Soderbergh directed Logan Lucky. Fine, I'm going to go see that, even though I don't necessarily care for the films of Channing Tatum. Others will go by critics. Okay, uh, Tim Kirchin loves Anne Hornaday's writing the Washington Post. Hornaday likes it, I'll go see it. And then sometimes you can say by the genres. Oh, listen, I like gangster movies. I'm going to watch a gangster movie because that's what this film is fitting. What I find interesting is when a critic cites another movie which they say it's like. Which is why I saw this film, Norman, starring Richard Gere, which came out earlier this year. Because there was a critic that I like, I can't remember it offhand, but he referenced, he goes, oh, this is like a modern-day king of comedy. So I said, oh, well, now I'm in. I, I don't know what the story's about, but I said, I don't necessarily care for Richard Gere. I can take him or leave him, but if there's shades of king of comedy, absolutely I'm in. So I watched him the flight back from Los Angeles after the premiere of Last Rampage, and I thought it was fantastic. It is a movie about a guy named Norman who is this fixer in New York City. All he does is he introduces people. That's his gig. He goes, he meets people, he introduces them to famous people of influence and establishment. But he himself is not a guy that you know much backstory about. You hear him at one point mention his daughter. Uh, you never see him with his family. You just always see him with his earbuds in. He's talking to somebody. He's got his trench coat. It's winter in New York. He's walking around introducing people. Oh, I know that person. I could talk to him. I could talk to him for you. And you go from there. And eventually he becomes friends with a guy who's really important when it comes to Israeli politics. So he's basically just latching on to this guy and just bothering him as he's going around. He's visiting. He finds out who he is. And eventually they, they go shopping. And this guy um, who is playing Miha Eschel, and the actor's name is Lior Ashkenazi. I don't know him in anything else, but he looks a lot like Steve Carell. So they're going shopping. And eventually he goes, no, I can't, I can't afford a suit like this. And he goes, no, no, you're important. You're important. You're big in the Jewish politics, Israeli. You've got to be important. 
I'll buy it for you. And you already get the sense Richard Gere is not somebody who's affording a $5,000 suit. Eventually, he says, well, let me at least get the shoes. Look at these shoes. These shoes make the man. Let me buy you these shoes. And the guy, Eschel, is just like, all right, fine. He's resigned to it. Like, who is this guy? He's just this really friendly guy. Apparently, something with the businessman. All right, fine. Goes back. The bill comes. Close for the bill. It's like 1200 bucks. <laughs> and it's great. You see Gare's reaction. We've all been there. Oh, maybe you buy something for your wife or girlfriend, significant other. And you go, wait, that's how much it costs? Hang on a second. I can't. No, no, no. But, it, of course, and Eschel noticed it. Gare's like, oh, I got it. No problem, no problem. The guy's the shoes go from there. It's told in four parts. Eventually, this guy, Eschel, becomes a prime minister of Israel. So now he comes back to New York, and, and Norman, played by Richard Gere, is telling uh, Michael Sheen, who's his relative, uh, Philip Cohen. He's like, yeah, no, I know him. I bought him these shoes. We're friends. And, and he says, look, we've kept in touch. I've done some small favors. But you get the sense he's probably making this up, much like De Niro and King of Comedy saying, oh, Jerry's my friend. I talked to Jerry. Like, I don't I think there's much of a relationship here. But sure enough, there's a long line to go meet the new Israeli prime minister, and Mia Eschel gives him a big hug. Norman, how are you? Norman, my friend, great to see you. This is to his wife. This is Norman. He's one of the great businessmen in New York. And Gear is beaming now, and you're like almost thinking the movie's a delusion. Like this can't actually be happening. The guy bought him his pair of shoes, and now he's somebody. Um, but again, he's basically a con man. He keeps trying to get into these inner circles and says, "Oh, I talked to me. Hey, you can put me in here." And, and people are always skeptical, but eventually he's trying to get these things done. Steve Buscemi is a local rabbi. Their synagogue is in danger of closing. And Gear goes, oh, don't worry, I can get some money for you. He's like, well, he's like, oh, I know some people. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix it up. It's like $7 million. <laughs> There's this hilarious scene in which he's basically telling Buscemi and all the other constituents of the synagogue, don't worry, we're going to raise the money for it. And he's like, how? Well, who is this person? He's like, well, there's an anonymous donor. He's willing to give $7 million. He's going to help you out. And it's like, what is this? Um, and the movie just goes from there. And I found it to be darkly funny. I don't know if I would categorize it necessarily as drama. There's dramatic elements to it, and Gear's terrific. I mean, he's an actor. I don't necessarily, like I said, I don't necessarily care for. Someone said to me, Richard Gere, I'd say, American Gigolo, because I like Schrader. Um, Pretty Woman's okay. I'm not a huge fan of it. But I find the last couple of movies, late in life, Richard Gere, he did a movie called Arbitrage I thought was excellent about the financial sector in New York, and now he made Norman. It's great. So Richard Gere, late in life, is terrific. Um, and, and, the, and Hornaday said, is Norman a masher, a schnorrer, or a mensch? Thanks to the filmmaker's sensitive touch and gear sympathetic performance, he gets to be all three, and that calls for Mazel Tovs all around. Adam Graham, by the way, is the guy from Detroit News. He's the one who said, Norman is a small character study of a classic wannabe. Think king of comedy set in the world of Jewish politics, and when it gets bogged in an international intrigue, it loses its way. I actually don't think so. I thought it held up the whole way. I was just curious how he's going to get out of this. I go, eventually they're going to say, Norman, you're a poser. You don't really know the Israeli prime minister that well. You're obviously raising up false funds for the synagogue. Eventually, you're going to get thrown out. By the way, Deez will appreciate this. The one way he's trying to get to Bashemi's side, eventually, he says, Well, my cousin, Michael Sheen, he goes, He's marrying somebody. He goes, Oh, maybe you can help with the ceremony. He goes, She's Korean. You just see the rabbi's face. She's converting to Judaism. Like, all right. <clears throat> Norman, I assure you, if you get us to seven million, I'll make it fine. Later on, we get a mazel tov. I'm like, This is great. This is the way these politics work. Get me seven million. I'll make the, the marriage look like it's all good and done. Uh, originally, it's titled The Moderate Rise and Tragic Fall of a New York Fixer. So inevitably, I'm wondering, okay, when is Norman going to get found out? And I thought they did a really good job of showing his downfall because eventually this guy's going to get found out. But because Gear is so sympathetic and he seems like a genuinely good guy, he's not manipulating people for his own gain per se. He's probably like somebody we all know who just they, – they try to appear bigger than they actually are. We all have a friend or someone we know. Like, oh, I know this person. Or I know that person. You, go, you don't really know that much. But fine. If you want to live under this world of pretense, you want me to buy your little game – what harm is that? And he's generally a harmless guy. And then the movie smacks you because you go, wait, actually, all these harmless acts have a really serious consequence for this Israeli, Israeli prime minister. So check out Norman. Uh, it came out earlier this year. Norman, the moderate rise and tragic fall of the New York fixer. It, it came out April 14th of this year. It's now available on DVD. So check it out. I really enjoyed it. Dan, your thoughts on Richard Gere and the movie Norman? I'm just waiting for your maple leaf count here. I assume it's going to be way too high. I'm going to give it... Um, I will give it three and a half Maple Leafs because I, I really enjoyed it um, and I thought it was a really well done movie. And I don't know much about uh, the filmmaker himself because, again, this is one of those movies, I, you know, it's not going to be on my radar unless it's well reviewed, unless there's some hook to it. Uh, and in my instance, I was able to, uh, to find it. So thanks to Joseph Cedar, who is the director of this film, three and a half Maple Leafs to Norman. Also, the and cast- quick, quickly on gear, the best film he's in is Primal Fear. Yeah, but that's because Ed Norton. It's still the best film gears in. That's fair. Also, a small performance from Hank Azaria. Our boy Hank Azaria is also in Norman. He shows up for about 10 minutes. So, go ahead. I'm going to give it another. another I should give it four Maple Leafs now just because Hank Azaria gets a Surprise show. Surprise you did. Yeah. 
So that's the film, Norman. Next up, as Dee said to me the other day at the picnic, real feel-good film, Detroit, from Catherine Bigelow. When I told Kirkjian, he was like, "What? you're seeing films about police brutality amidst watching 12-year-old Little Leaguers in Williamsport. Like, that's correct. Catherine Bigelow, you know where you love her, director, of course, of um, The Hurt Locker, won the Oscar for that, and Zero Dark Thirty, which I thought was a little overrated. I like Jessica Chastain, but I didn't think it was as hypnotic, perhaps, as others would have you believe. But Detroit is a story uh, based on true life events of what happened in 1967. Unfortunately, far too relevant story about police brutality and uh, racial profiling. And this makes me think about how sometimes it can be really dangerous to be too good in a performance. I remember watching the movie Kinsey with Liam Neeson, and there's uh, William Sadler as an actor. He was in uh, Trespass with Bill Paxton, Ice-T, Ice Cube. William Sadler is one scene where Kinsey's just exploring, you know, the movie, he's the, the famous sex researcher, and he's talking about sexual identity. And he meets William Sadler, who claims to have had sex with 27 different types of species. I remember watching the movie, and, and Sadler's brilliant to him. Like, how did you get cast in the next movie? They go, hey, I'm up for movie. I'm up for Free Willy. Have you seen my work in Kinsey? I don't know how the audience is going to believe this. Dylan Baker's another one. He was in the movie Happiness, which I love because it flips you off. But Dylan Baker plays this pedophile in the movie. You go, I can't get him. He was too good in the movie. This is a problem I said to J.K. Simmons when he had him on the pod. I said, you were too good as Schillinger as Oz. I could never imagine you in any of the role but this neo-Nazi just torturing Beecher. Um, but as J.K. told us on Cinefile, I said what helped is he was also in Law and & Order, and that character was this well-meaning psychiatrist. So at least I was able to, to wash away the neo-Nazi and replace him with this other character. But I often wonder about typecasting and how that affects certain actors, and, and certainly some more than others. Um, John Turturro famously said after Do the Right Thing, he said on set, like one of the um, caterers just despised him. She told Turturro at one point, like, I hate you. And he was like, well, you know, I'm just playing the character. Like, it's Pino. Like, it's the way it's written by Spice. He's like, no, I, like, I hate your guy. Although Tatura said, I never had more street cred than, he goes, everybody, anybody who's black loves me in that movie. Because they all go, yeah, you're dead on, man. Like, that speech that you give with Spike where you're like, you know, who's your favorite musician? Michael Jackson. He's like, oh, Bruce. And he's like, you know, who's your favorite, uh, you know, Michael Jordan. He's like, no, because he goes, they're black, but they're not really black. He's like, that's what the way those racists think. He goes, you nailed that. They're like, the, those guys, they're, they're, they're better than black. They're, they're different than black. But anyways, Tatar was able to overcome that stain. But he said he had to tell Spike, hey, the next time you put him in a movie, make me somebody who's more sympathetic towards blacks. And in Jungle Fever, obviously, he dates, uh, he dates a black woman. So the reason I mention this is Will Poulter is the guy who plays the cop in Detroit. And he's just this <laughs> virulently racist character. Uh, the first hour of the film I found a little bit sluggish. Bengal is just trying to set up the story of what's happening in Detroit at that time. And... Um, you know, there's a concert going on, and there's just musicians appearing, and they're just kind of sitting at the landscape. But I, to be honest, I thought it was a little bit sluggish. I don't think she needed all that. The movie's about 2.22. So with trailers, you're looking at, at two and a hook here. But where the movie is incredible is once they're locked inside the Algiers Hotel, and that's where Anthony Mackie is and a few of his friends and a couple of white girls who they had picked up, and now all of a sudden the cops are on the scene, and you can see where this is going to go. And Poulter's excellent because he is just He's not playing it like the racist, like, you know, some sort of hick uh, who just has, you know, racism seeping out of his pores. You can just tell that he's just one of these malevolent characters who thinks he's above the law and uh, and wants to punish these guys and teach these guys a lesson. So no matter what, you know, they they heard a gun go off and he wants to know who the source of the gun was and where's the gun, et cetera. And he's just being belligerent um, to these to these people and to the girls as well. And at one point, they're just literally making stuff up. Like one of the other cops is like, oh, I think that this guy's a pimp. Not only he's a pimp, but these white girls, like these are these girls that they're pimping out. And so he's, you know, now he's harassing the white women. And, like, and, they're, and they're taking them aside one by one systematically and then saying, don't say anything. And then shooting their gun and then saying, like, pretend you're dead because we're going to go back out in the hallway and tell the rest of them that we just killed you, et cetera. And, no, you know, that whole sequence, that, that is Bigel at her best because it's so claustrophobic and so intimate and absolutely terrifying. Um, as one critic I read said, it goes, they could have called them the Battle of Algiers, which, of course, is a famous Gilo Pontecorvo film back from 1967. Um, but that, that whole sequence inside the Algiers Hotel is amazing and gripping and some of the best uh, of any film that you'll see this year. That's about a solid hour of just police interrogation and brutality. And then you get to the aftermath and the uh, ensuing court case, which I did not know much about based on true story. Um, I don't often get frustrated with regards to filmmakers taking liberties with the story. My mom grew up in England, so all my mom's family's in England, and I recently saw them, and they're all just furious with Dunkirk because they said there's like 30,000 Indian soldiers who died at Dunkirk. And I said, well, listen, Christopher Nolan's not the first filmmaker to, to, to whitewash the story or to not uh, focus on the true facts. And it's not a documentary. It's a movie. It's, you know, you can make whatever you want to make. They're like, yeah, but it's, it's, it's BS. Like, Churchill is not the hero you guys think he is. He was 
very much against Gandhi. He let all these Bengalis die during a famine. A lot of what you know, the, the, that British regime was just manipulating and and utilizing others for the, England's own gain. I'm like, okay, I got that. But again, Chris Finnell is not making a movie about how India was being uh, taken over and manipulated by these people. He's just making a war film. So if he, if he wants to whitewash it, so to speak, there's no brown faces on the beach. I'm like, all right, well, that's his choice. So similarly in Detroit, I read some people saying, oh, well, Bigelow could have shown it this way or because, you know, she's a white filmmaker. She doesn't understand the black. And I said, look, you know what? Ultimately, this is a tough sell as a movie. Like, I kept thinking, who is the audience to go see this film? If you're like, hey, let's go see, <laughs> to Tim's point, let's go see Detroit tonight. So is it going to be well-meaning liberals, white liberals who are saying, yes, this is a real problem of police brutality, which unfortunately still exists today, and we can learn from the past about how this is still relevant? Is it black people who have been the victims of police brutality who want to see this film to reaffirm and, and uh, you know, reinforce the fact this is what's been happening for decades, we can do something about it? It's certainly not going to be those who do not believe that there's any issue of police brutality, because why would they watch this film, which is, you know, antagonizing them in their beliefs that, you know, whatever incidents of police brutality end up being overinflated and given over-exaggerated importance by the media. So I think it's a tough sell as a movie. Clearly, it's been disappointing at the box office. The only chance Bigelow has is if she can get some nominations. It was well-reviewed, but not incredibly reviewed, like some of her earlier movies. But I think it's well-meaning, and I think it tells an important story. And like I said, it's still relevant today. So I'm giving Detroit three Maple Leafs. I did think it was a little bit sluggish, as I mentioned in the first hour, but she's a filmmaker who is unflinching in terms of those stories uh, and harrowing as well. The last film we're reviewing is uh, Logan Lucky. Steven Soderbergh's comeback. He said he was retired, came back after four years to make this movie, and I'm not going to say Steven Soderbergh should have stayed retired because that would be a little bean-spirited, but I've always found him a little overrated as a filmmaker. I I love Out of Sight. Um, I think Traffic is excellent, well-deserved Oscar for that movie. But I found the Ocean's movies, like, they're fine, they're a little bit derivative, they're a little repetitive. Um, and aside from that, like, I don't, you know, Behind the Candelabra, the TV movie with uh, Matt Damon and Michael Douglas, Rosillo's a big fan of that. We both have talked about the campiness of that movie, uh, particularly Douglas playing Liberace. But I, I don't find Soderbergh to be upper echelon filmmakers. So whenever people tell me uh, how great he is, I guess Sex, Lies, and Videotape, I think, is horrifically overrated. Like, the fact that that one... The con, that, that won the Palm d'Or that year over Do the Right Thing. And Spike even publicly came out and was like, listen, this guy's movie's garbage. Like, how did that beat my movie? Like, I know we're supposed to play nice here, but Do the Right Thing is a million times better than Sex, Lies, and Videotape. So I've always found Soderbergh a little overrated. But but listen, I hear his name. I know people like him. All right, Logan Lucky. And I know it's a takeoff of, of the Ocean's movies. It's a heist movie, but this time he's setting it in the Deep South. And, um, you know, so basically you could say it's, it's one of these Ocean's movies for, for the South. But rather than being a smart, entertaining, fast-paced caper, I just found it to be like a, 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 an overbaked, redneck hillbilly heist. And, and the only redeemable aspect of it, and I'm giving it two Maple Leafs, is the cast because they're all really good. I mean, Channing Tatum uh, is excellent. Adam Driver is very good. And Daniel Craig, sure, Lem loves Daniel Craig, those, those English crime movies. You know, you picture him being this badass or maybe in James Bond. Here he's got this ridiculous dye job. He's got this hardcore redneck accent. He's he's this guy who comes up with these bombs with, like, gummy bears. Like, he's just whacked. Um, but he's clearly having fun in the role. I, I, I can imagine Daniel Craig, when he got the call from Soderbergh, was like Robert Patrick when he got the call from David Chase. Like, oh, what a fun movie that I can play completely against type is something totally different. And uh, that's probably why he enjoyed doing it. So he's definitely having a hoot. Uh, you got a small role from Hilary Swank as well. But I just think that the story was, was that funny. I mean, quite simply, I, I thought the plot was fine. The premise is okay, all right? They're going to have a heist during this NASCAR race, but I didn't think it was entertaining or funny enough. And, and certainly, when you look at the talents involved, uh, not worthy of that measure. And I think if you go by cinema score, most audiences, in fact, were not uh, enjoying it as much as the critics did. So, Logan Lucky, I'm giving two Maple Leafs. Unless you really love Soderbergh's movies, unless you really love the Ocean's movies, I thought it was a little bit half-baked overall. Lem right now is uh, nodding, and either he saw Logan Lucky or liked it or didn't like it. Dan, can you pass along what our friend Rob Lemley's saying in there? says it sounds like a genre issue. It could be. I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah. Lem's point, I, there's not a lot of heist movies that I'm really all in on, aside from Heat, of course. Although I feel like Heat overcomes just being a heist movie because it's about you know relationships and this big-time drama and stuff. But, yeah, Logan Lucky. By the way, it did not do well at the box office. The box office was so bad this past weekend. They say it's like post-9-11 levels. Like they, they, the like, worst in 16 years. I think a lot of that's the, the Mayweather-McGregor fight. You think so? 
Why not? What else are people doing this weekend? I think it's a lot of bad movies. I mean, listen. Well, obviously, that has it, it, to play it, a factor, go, too. Go of course. The, go see the movie Friday. Go see a 1 o'clock show, 4 o'clock show, 7 o'clock show Saturday. Go see a Sunday movie. Look look at the least movies. The Hitman's Bodyguard, Ryan Reynolds, Sam Jackson, 40% Rotten Tomatoes, Pass. Annabelle Creation, Leap. Wind River's supposed to be great. Howard Bryant loved it. I haven't been able to see it. It's not playing in Connecticut, nor was it playing in Williamsport. Logan Lucky, which was bad, four point two million. Dunkirk's still hanging on; it's the only thing that's redeemable. Spider Man: Homecoming, like that theater in Williamsport. I couldn't. They they played ten movies, only four o'clock and seven o'clock shows, and they were still playing Wonder Woman. I'm like, are you kidding? Hey, I'm, I'm all in on Patty Jenkins. Maybe she's going to get nominated for Best Director Oscar. But the movie came out in May, and the guy was like, listen, there hasn't been very many good movies. Birth of the Dragon opened two point seven million. The Emoji movie's awful. Almost a girls' trip just to support our buddy Malcolm Lee. That's actually doing pretty good. I think it's just a lot of horrendous movies at the box office, and that's why uh, Hollywood's and most of August has been sluggish. Aside from the the huge success of Dunkirk, uh, it's been disappointing. So, anyways, I'm sure Hollywood will recover. I just picked up my Entertainment Weekly fall preview issues, so cannot wait. Listen, we got a new Darren Aronofsky movie, Mother, coming out September 15th. We got a new Alexander Payne movie with Matt Damon that's coming out in December called Downsizing. Got a new P.T. Anderson movie coming out starring Daniel Day-Lewis, 1950s fashion scene in London. That's coming out Christmas. And you've got Spielberg, Hanks, Meryl Streep together. The Papers, which is about the battle between the Washington Post and Richard Nixon and the Pentagon during that era. And that's already going to be an Oscar frontrunner. So the good news is fall movie season will soon be upon us. A ton of movies to look forward to. George Clooney is a new movie, Suburbicon, also with Matt Damon looking forward to that. And a bunch of tennis movies. You know, I'm fired up for Federer at the U.S. Open. we got Battle of the Sexes, Steve Carell playing Bobby Riggs. Emma Stone is playing Billie Jean King. So there, there are movies for sports fans and not in sports fans alike. Speaking of sports, Namdi Asamoah, our guest now here on Cinephile. And joining us now on Cinephile, the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast, is Namdi Asamoah. Of course, a name familiar to all those of you who are sports fans, but now he's enjoying what is a remarkable second act. Namdi, thanks so much for joining us. Your new film, Crown Heights, not only are you a producer of it, but also one of the co-stars of it. I'm just curious, before we get into the, the specifics of the film, but how long have you had an inkling that once you were done being a cornerback for the Raiders and the Eagles, that eventually you'd want to shift to motion pictures? Um, that's a good question. I don't an inkling. So, like the first hint, I'd say maybe like midway through my career, maybe like my fifth year, I started doing a little bit of work during the off season. Um, you know, just training a little bit and and just seeing if I had a bug for it, if I could catch the bug for it, and then it led to this. And leading to this, I mean, listen, you, you took a serious subject matter here. This is, you know, a true story of a man who's wrongfully incarcerated, and you play the guy who is helping him on his behalf even after he's lost hope. What was it about this story that you appealed to you? Um, just, you know, the story was on This American Life, and our director, Matt Ruskin, he heard it and said he wanted to turn it into a film, and he made a five-minute documentary of Colin and of Carl, and you see Colin who goes through one years in prison for something he didn't do and the moment he gets out he gives an interview and he says that he forgives everyone that had a hand in putting him in there and it just completely blew me away that 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 he would say that that he existed and i just said you know this is one that i would love to be a part of so i went in and auditioned and, and got the part yeah, as far as that's, it's one thing to put up some money for it, but another thing to actually be acting in it. So, which one was more crucial to you, being a producer, making sure this film got made, or appearing in it and, and being an actor? Both. I mean, the the acting, the beauty of it was the acting came first, and I just really could dive into the character, and you know that was what I wanted to do. But I I stumbled into producing when I got involved with a film called Beast of No Nation just maybe months, a few months after I retired. So I stumbled into that and said I really wanted to do it. Then when the opportunity came up with this film um, and just being able to use some resources and helping the film get to New York and some people that I worked with, bringing them onto the team, it, 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 you know, it was something that I just I jumped at because I wanted it to be as authentic and real as possible. And that certainly is... Uh, uh captured in the film, that, that sense of authenticity. What did you do to prepare for the role? I mean, in terms of, I mean, listen, when it's based on a true story, you, you have the advantage, I suppose, of talking to the people involved or researching materials. How deep did you go? 
really deep. It was it was one of the things that football really taught me is about the the preparation. You know, and a lot of times I would hear it a lot from from guys like Ronnie Lott and Rod Woodson and those guys that would tell me, you know, whatever it is that you go into next, make sure you you prepare for it the same way that you prepared for this. So I, you know, I'm the guy that knew nothing about acting. I, I didn't go to school for it. So all I thought was, let me just immerse myself in it as much as possible and just try to learn as much as I possibly can and and be a student of it. So that's what I did. I mean, I spent time with with Carl, the the real guy that I portray, and just really tried to get into his life and and what would make him do something like this. And obviously, had to learn an accent, had to learn you know sort of the way that uh, he moved and 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 talked and all of that because it was all cultural. So it was a big deep dive that I had to do, but it was all well worth it. It's obviously a hot topic right now in terms of you know, Black Lives Matter, police brutality. I just saw the Catherine Bigelow film, Detroit. That's obviously a true story of what happened back in 1967, and sadly, it's still too relevant story. How does your movie dovetail not only with, with that aspect, but the, the theme of just how many young black men are, are incarcerated and how that's an issue that unfortunately is not going away? Yeah, I mean, with our film, there wasn't we weren't trying to make the big message. We just wanted to be genuine and tell Colin's story and and have that responsibility for for him. So we didn't take the angle of this is an anti-cop film or let's make this about race, but this was a true story and these things did happen. You know, race did play a part, and there were some cops that were doing things that they shouldn't have been doing. So. Um, you know, like I said, it wasn't the agenda, but at the end of the day, it had to be a part of it because we had to, in order to tell Colin's story, you had to highlight the fact that there was a, a sort of dangerousness or a you're guilty that got assigned to him just because of how he looked. I see right now, of course, Crown Heights is getting good reviews. I enjoyed the film. I thought it was really powerful, particularly the, the acting all around. What's it been like for you to now, um, is there a sense of vindication seeing the reviews and what people are saying about the film? No, 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 not really. That, because because I, I don't lead with that. Like I, I genuinely, and that, that's not to sound any sort of way, I genuinely was, uh, all that I cared about was, was Colin and Carl and them being proud of the fact that their story was out there. I couldn't control whether it was going to be received well or whether it was going to be good. I mean, I thought it was good. That was really all that mattered. Like, I didn't, you know, a hundred people could say it was terrible, but the fact that the story was out there, we got to Sundance, um, won the, the audience award there, but it was that first screening that we had at Sundance where Colin and Carl got to get on a microphone and after the film people cheered for them and they got to tell their story those are the types of things that you know just it it shows you why you make films like this and that's that's all i really wanted well no question you're right is the reward of seeing people's reaction to it um where can people see the film i know it's opening wide gradually so please give everyone an indication of where they can find crown heights yeah it was in new york august 18th and then the uh, the 25th, it expanded to L.A., and then September 1st, it expands uh, nationwide. And then it just continues to expand more theaters, September 8th, and then September 15th. So by the 15th, it should be in the city that you live in. That's awesome news. I encourage people to check out Crown Heights. One more for you. I don't know if you saw the miniseries The Night Of, Riz Ahmed, uh, John Turturro, but I thought it was I great. Did, yeah, I thought your film really reminded me a lot of it and, again, dealt with that very powerful theme. Did you see any similarities? I'm, obviously, you were not looking at that while you were making your film, but did you see any parallels between those two? Because I certainly did, and I liked both projects a lot. I did, and you know what was crazy? We finished shooting. We were completely done, and then and The Night Of hadn't even aired yet. So when it finally aired, and we started actually seeing some of the actors that were in our film in that, you know, and some of the same... Yeah, Bill Camp is in it. Sort of things. Bill Camp is in both, yeah, and even the storylines. It, it was all very interesting. It was also New York. Um, but, yeah, definitely a lot of connections there. And that's a great, that was a great um, HBO series. So I think we're in good company if the, if the um, comparisons are with that.
No question. It's a good companion piece to watch both. On a personal note, I'm an Eagles fan, so I should thank you for the years in, in Philadelphia. Hey. <laughs> On a sport- there you go. There you go. Thank you. Uh, I, I wish we would have done better while I was there. I'm sorry, Adnan. Um, but, you know. No, man. Fly, Eagles, fly. I appreciate the effort you did, and uh, I appreciate the, That's right. And I appreciate That's the right. fact you're making good movies. Uh, thanks so much. Namdi Asamoah, a great cornerback and now a terrific actor and producer. Thanks so much for the time, man. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Actor Showcase. I haven't had the heart to tell Mark Simon that we've retired three words. Like, there's no bigger fan of it than him and... and I mean, I just we're tired. Well, I think of doing the cat's it. out of the bag now. <laughs> like Hume Cronin. I mean, once we did Hume Cronin, we go. I think I think this entire segment has elapsed its usefulness. Didn't you specifically ask for Hume Cronin, or no, was no, that no. Mark? Simon sent it to me because here's a few names. So he me. effectively ruined the segment he cares about the most. That's <laughs> like, what you're saying. How many people were sitting there going, "Oh, Hume Cronin"? I would just drive him three words: old, old geriatric. By the way, Dees has offered a segment. I've mentioned this to Dan about doing a um, specific scene, essential scenes. Maybe we'll do that at some point. Essentially, you pick a movie, Dan and I have both seen, you pick an essential scene and break it down. Maybe at some point. But Actor Showcase, Mark has sent along some tidbits here. Per BoxOfficeMojo.com, the lowest grossing of Michael Keaton's 37 listed movies is Game 6, which grossed about $130,000, played in 13 theaters. Also starred B.B. Newworth and Robert Downey Jr., a Don DeLillo screenplay. Keaton plays a playwright named Nicky Rogan. Robert Downey is the reviewer. They end up watching Game 6 of the 1986 World Series together. It's really weird. As much as I love the subject matter, it's a two-maple leaf movie, though it's a nice warm-up for Birdman. Mark Simon and I sharing a brain, except for the last part. I love Game 6. It's my number five Michael Keaton movie. I think it's fantastic. He plays, it's exactly the description of the movie. He's this playwright who's got this movie, and it's definitely shades, excuse me, a play. He's definitely shades of Birdman, but all he cares about is the Red Sox. So he's, he's living in New York. I'm going to go watch the Sox. Maybe, and it obviously becomes just like a sporting event becomes a treatise on his life, that he feels like if the Red Sox can win this game, they can win the World Series. It can redeem his wavered life, all of his past sins. I thought it was excellent. I haven't seen it since it came out. Um, but I really enjoyed it. It was my number five movie. I'm, by the way, excluding The Paper, which is a tough one to omit. Jamel Hill, one of her favorite movies. Uh, that one is just missing the cut. I know Dan's going to be upset. Clear history not making it. Small role in Larry David's movie Michael Keaton was in. We'll continue. This is Mark Simon's edition. Arguably Keaton's best movie, Spotlight, ranks 22nd in box office gross. Adjusted for inflation among his films trailing Gung Ho and The Dream Team. Dan knows I love The Dream Team. One of my dad's favorite movies. Lem is all in on that as well. Um, but Spotlight is my number four film. Excellent. I mentioned it. Just watched it again. Brilliant work by all. Keaton, maybe some had some quibble with the accent, but I thought he was pretty good. He just, he just you know, he, he knew when to kind of pick and pop with the Boston accent, playing a sympathetic character. He's, I suppose, the de facto lead, but obviously it's a real ensemble cast. But I, I love uh, the scene. A, where he challenges the guy at the end to get the signatures and to agree to what's happened. And two, where he admits his own culpability and the fact that they did get this story years past when he was working in a different division with the Globe and did not act upon it. I thought he really underplayed that well, that you get the sense of the guilt that this guy is carrying, that he probably could have helped break the story earlier. Also, Mark adds, and I don't want to keep in surprise, it's Mr. Mom, the ninth highest grossing movie in 1983, opened in 126 theaters for $947,000. Of the top 30 grossing movies that year, it's the only one to bank less than a million in its opening weekend. Uh, sadly, Mr. Mom did not make my top five, but I'm glad that I at least mentioned it. Number three is Batman. What are the top three superhero grossing movies of all time? The Avengers, 683 million. Spider-Man, 618. Batman, $560 million, 52nd overall. It's my number three movie. I think it's still iconic. I know that there are some who say, if you go back and watch those movies, they really pale in comparison to what Christopher Nolan did with his Dark Knight trilogy. Although Dan is a friend of his, he said, if you go back and watch The Dark Knight, that also now feels dated, which seems strange to me. But I still love the original Batman. I, I love uh, Tim Burton's vision for it, dark and gothic, and Danny Elfman's music, and, of course, Nicholson overacting while Keaton's underacting as Batman. I think it's a real hoop. Number two is Birdman. Much has been said of the technical virtuosity of Alejandro González Iñárritu. Keaton himself has said he was on with uh, Neil Everett on SportsCenter a couple weeks ago promoting this new film he has coming out about assassins sometime in September. And when Neil asked him, what's the movie you're most proudest of, stunningly, Keaton said multiplicity, which I almost fell off the couch, but he explained it was just so challenging in terms of the technology that he's playing himself in like six different roles. He then followed up by saying, well, Birdman's the movie that's probably the closest to me because of the fact Alejandro took so many chances with it and there were so many parallels for me playing a, not a washed-up actor, but a guy who was most famous for a superhero role who's now trying to reinvent himself. And then, of course, the fact the film was so successful, that lends uh, to Keaton's pleasure with it. And number one, 
Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. <laughs> Love Beetlejuice. Small role, but he steals the movie. Keaton's fabulous. In it. Who else could, could play it that well? Nice bleeping model. Uh-uh. I love Michael Keaton in Beetlejuice. He's so funny. He's so entertaining. Manic energy. Um, I thought everything about it was amazing. And they've talked about doing a remake. I don't know if they, I, I don't know about a standalone Beetlejuice movie, but if there's a Beetlejuice two, in which Rona Ryder now takes on a central role and uh, he could reprise his role, I thought he was so funny and so entertaining in Beetlejuice. Dan is upset that uh, Clean and Sober not making the list. Really good no, Keaton movie. No, actually, okay. I wouldn't even call these quibbles because I haven't seen either one of them. I'm not a huge Keaton guy. I mean, I like. Him as an actor, but I'm not too. I don't know too much about his work. Yeah. Uh, the founder, which you recently saw and yeah. reviewed, you don't have in your top five. Right, I did like him. Didn't think the movie was that great, but he was all right. Honorable no. mention. Yeah, uh, sure. Six, seven, maybe about eight or nine. Okay. <laughs> and uh, one of his earlier films, our old buddy Colin Cowherd used to rave it. He loves Keaton, and he loved him in Night Shift. Yeah, you know, Night Shift's one. It's funny, Keaton. Whenever he gets asked for this movie, or he's doing like career retrospective, he will often reference Night Shift as well. It's um. I haven't seen it in so long. I'd probably have to revisit it again. But I will I will defer to Colin Coward, noted movie Maven as well. He's a big Judy Dench guy as well. I remember he just loves his mother's British, so he, you know. Okay, so there we go. So well Coward and I have that in cup. Maybe I'll ask him if his mother didn't like the fact that Dunkirk's significant whitewashing of all the Indian soldiers. I'll call up Colin right now, see if he thought of the uh, realism of Dunkirk. So the top five of Michael Keaton, Beetlejuice, Birdman, Batman, Spotlight, and Game Six. Just missing the cut, the paper. Uh, clean and sober, he plays an alcoholic. Good movie people have mentioned in the past. Multiplicity is close to Keaton's heart. I love the Dream Team. That'd be my number six. And since Larry David was all a part of clear history, a small role for Keaton in there as well. But he is our actor spotlight. And thanks to Mark Simon playing the role of researcher for this one. Streaming suggestions. I should have done this in the opening when we were doing all the reviews of the movies. But in terms of recommendations, which is what streaming is, Dan Stanzik will tell you why now Atomic Blonde starring the beautiful Charlize Theron is not a film you should be seeing in the theaters. Dan. Are we doing this now? i got a long review. Please. Okay. Charlize Theron is magnetic, an ice pick thrust into the frigid, deteriorating Berg of Berlin. She's simply got the best eyes in the business. They're deep wells of sorrow or contempt, and depending on who she's looking at, in this film, the only thing remotely betraying her Terminator demeanor. That is what David Sims of The Atlantic <laughs> said about the spy film Atomic Blonde, which we will now review. Charlize Theron plays an MI6 agent in the late 80s who's sent to Berlin to recover a secret list of those working in the intelligence community. I believe that is similar to the knock list in Mission Impossible. Do I have that correct? It's correct. Okay, thank you. Uh, the film is literally set on the eve of the collapse of communism, with the Berlin Wall actually falling towards the end of the film, and everything is screaming Eastern European and 80s. The lighting, the drab outfits, the bar-slash-club scenes, and most significantly, the music. The film is told in flashback. It starts as a debriefing session of her as an agent, so she's telling the MI6 agent she works for what happened and also sitting in on the debriefing session is a CIA agent played by John Goodman. Uh, James McAvoy plays an MI6 colleague stationed in Berlin. He is crazy. I know Adnan hated him in Split, but he is just, he's kind of mad, manic in this film, and I th actually think he does a nice job. Uh, this film, if you're going to see it, you're going to see it for the action sequences. They almost feel intimate in the way they are shot by the director, David Leach who is a former stuntman himself and excelled in this realm when he co-directed John Wick. The problem with Atomic Blonde is that it's hard to follow. You got KGB agents, MI6 agents, the Berlin police, a French intelligence officer. I don't know what the French intelligence call themselves, but they don't think they have a cool nickname. And there's the CIA operative. And if there's one thing I'm positive of, it's that they all end up double-crossing each other at some point in the film. I thought I understood what happened and who everyone was really working for. And then there's an extra 10 minutes of the movie with two more plot twists that I did not see coming. <laughs> I'm going to give it two and a half Maple Leafs wow. because I'm actually a tough grader, unlike Adnan. Uh, because Theron has found something of a groove as an action star after her performance in Mad Max Fury Road. And there's an elaborate 10 to 15 minute fight scene with KGB agents on a staircase that is literally worth seeing. That part of the film is great. I'm also a sucker for films about secret agents and foreign intrigue. As you know, I have a political background. 
Um, so not not good. I wouldn't recommend that people go see it. But if you like action, you like those kind of films, I would see it. I also am interested. It is in the line of female superhero films. And with Wonder Woman making a big splash, there is kind of some momentum there. Would you agree with that? I think so. All I heard about was the action scene. Someone said to me, they go, the talk ball is pretty generic, but that one, it must be the staircase. It's it, the staircase, said, yeah. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> You've got to see it just for that scene. And so I don't, I mean, obviously there were there were female superheroes in the past, so I don't know where it started from. I actually haven't seen this film where I'm going to give it credit for its resurgence, but the movie Frozen, female superhero, you're always used to this Prince Charming showing up and saving the day. It's actually, spoiler her sister that saves the day. And I think that's where we got a lot of momentum for female superheroes oh, or females good. saving the day. I like it. It's good thinking outside the box there. Yeah. Um, how long is the sequence, the action sequence? And no more than 15 minutes. And how long is it in the movie? It's probably 65% of the way into right. the movie. So next flight. If I had Atomic Blonde's there, I'm just going to go. Oh, it's, yeah, it's a good plane movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I could just watch that scene more than anything. All right. Good review there. Atomic Blonde, Two and a Half Maple Leafs, courtesy of Dan Stanzik. His Scorsese story coming up momentarily. Streaming suggestions on Netflix. City of God. Dan and I recently did our list of the best movies of this century. And um, my cousin Nyla's husband, Imran, when my brother asked him, he was like, oh, City of God's great. And I said, you know, I haven't seen it so long. I remember liking it a lot when it came out. Keith Law is a big fan of it as well. Um, uh, crime film set in Brazil. It is really well done. I'd like to watch it again. So that's almost I'm recommending myself to go watch City of God again because it's been so long since it came out. But I remember I really enjoyed it. Some shades of Goodfellas because it shows these guys as uh, young thieves and then becoming adults. Gangs of New York, of course, is available on Netflix. I will always recommend Gangs of New York. While in Williamsburg, I saw Kevin Conlon, former researcher here. We spent about 15 minutes during a rain delay just trading Bill the Butcher lines back and forth. He reminded me how good Brendan Gleeson is. Brendan Gleeson is the one who ends up trying to lead uh, the dead rabbits. And so the scene where <laughs> Tay Lewis kills him, he like points to the, the clobber and he goes, look at this. See this? See this notch? This is you. Bashes him the bits. You Irish pig. And then Africa's set him on fire, see if his ashes turn green. <laughs> Conlon also enjoys the scene when he gets uh, confronted by Jim Broadbent. And he starts, the way he taps his eye, the glass eyes, so chilling the way Day-Lewis does. He just cut them. I paid you fair. Let me eat my mutton now in peace. Gangs in New York never gets old. Requiem for a dream as well. I should tell this story. Maybe I'll retell it. But last rampage, I'll tell it again when we do that specific podcast of that movie. After the movie, guy comes up to Ron Gilbert, producer, and he goes, hey, listen, great job hosting. Oh, thanks. Appreciate it. By the way, I don't think anyone there knew I was from ESPX. For one guy, he goes, ah, oh, Notre Dame. I'm like, what? Because you're a big Notre Dame guy. So, no, no, I, I mean, I have nothing against the Golden Domers. Do you but, think you were Golic? That's what I said. I go, Golic, Hannah Storm. He's like, ah, oh, Notre Dame. I, I said, I do work on college football. I liked uh, when they hired Ty Willingham, but I, I said, I'm not really a Notre Dame guy per se. And I really, you know, I mean, I can go either way on them. He's like, no, nah, Notre Dame. And I'm like, all right, sure, Notre Dame. Great. I don't, I don't think many expectations for your fighting Irish. Um, but regardless, Ron comes up because oh, uh, Friday we have this Saudi Arabian film opening in L.A. I think it'd be great to host it. I did not have the heart to tell him I'll be back here doing college football. But I said, oh, we'll, we'll be in touch. Great. Ron, then his buddy comes up, starts talking. He goes, this is my buddy Stan. He's in all Aronofsky's movies. I'm like, oh, cool. How are you? Good to see you. We start talking. It took me a minute, but I said, oh, my God, I'm so sorry, Stan. I didn't pick it right away. He goes, what? I go, you're the guy I'm right quick for a dream. You're the ass-to-ass guy. And he starts laughing. I go, of course. As just, once he said, he goes, he's in all Aronofsky's movies. He always plays the pervert. I'm like, oh, of course. You're the guy. He then told me that scene. He said, he goes, oh, Darren's great. Uh, Darren's from Brooklyn. He's from like, me. He grew up Coney Island. I'm like, no, of course. Yeah. He goes, when Darren was shooting it, I told him, I said, shoot that scene overhead because it'll look like it's two hearts. And I said, Stan, I haven't seen the movie in a while, but hey, it's available on Netflix. So go ahead and watch my guy Stan. I also got his contact information. I said, listen, we'd love to get Aronofsky on the pod with Mother opening September 15th. He goes, all right, we'll be in touch. We'll exchange information. So if we get Aronofsky on Cinephile, it's because of my guy Stan, who's great requiem for a dream. And Squid and the Whale is on Netflix. That's from Noah Baumbach. You'll know his name. Because I loved his film uh, De Palma. He co-directed that documentary, which I had on my top ten movies of last year. Um, Bombback clearly shares some sensibilities with Wes Anderson. So if you like Wes Anderson's early movies, I think you'll like Squid and the Whale. And I love Jeff Daniels' performance. Sometimes you watch a movie, you think of yourself, and maybe you think it's you later in life. There's a scene where he's talking to his teenage son. He's going to go up with his girlfriend. And Jeff Daniels says, what are you guys doing? He says, we're going to the movies. We're going to go see Short Circuit. He invites himself along and says, well, why don't we see Blue Velvet instead? 
I said, that, that would be me one day, this, this pretentious poser father looking to spend time with his son. His kid wants to go see Fast and Furious 10. I'm like, no, no, no. we're seeing Blue Velvet. It's David Lynch, it's this beautiful film. Squid in the Whale, I just love it for that scene alone. Also on Amazon, Indecent Proposal, I'm recommending why Robert Redford just turned 81. A year ago, I saw Pete's Dragon when I was in central Pennsylvania. Uh, this time, maybe we could watch Bob Redford's Indecent Proposal. I haven't seen it in so long. I think it's enjoyable trash. What I, what I really like about it is that it was the template for one of the funniest bits from Kingpin because Randy Quaid offers a million dollars to sleep with Woody Harrelson's character. Go back and watch that. Lars and the Real Girl, Ryan Gosling, um, before he really kind of hit it big. I'm talking about hitting it big. Like, I don't think I appreciate how big Ryan Gosling is now. The fact that they're making the, the new Blade Runner is coming out. I was reading about it in the Entertainment Weekly Fall Preview. Him, Harrison Ford, Denis Villeneuve directing. Like Gosling right now is as big as it gets. And Lars and the Real Girl, really quite indie film. Uh, a little eccentric, but I thought he was terrific in it. And a movie called The Cove. That's a great documentary. I know Mark Simon likes his documentaries. You've probably seen it. The Cove is available on Amazon. And this was a story that I remember seeing because sometimes people think of documentaries and it gets the bad label of being uh, boring or you know drags you down. But this is a thriller. So this is the rare time that the documentary becomes something different. I'll read you the plot synopsis. In the 1960s, Richard O'Berry enjoyed a lucrative career as a specialized animal trainer. He captured the five dolphins that were used in the popular television series Flipper and taught them the tricks and special commands they used in the show. Four decades later, O'Berry has renounced his former life as a trainer and become an animal rights activist, speaking out against the hunting of aquatic mammals and keeping them in captivity. O'Berry is not welcome in Taiji, a town along the Japanese coast where hunting dolphins is a major part of the local economy, but he and a group of activist filmmakers made their way into the city as well as the carefully guarded harbor in hopes of documenting the abuse of dolphins by fishermen and the poisoning of the waters that has taken a toll on the marine ecology. O'Berry and his colleagues captured some beautiful underwater footage as well as shocking images of how the town's fishermen have sullied the dolphins and their habitat. And the director, Louis Sihoyos, has used this material as the basis for the documentary The Cove, which received its world premiere at the 2009 Sundance Film Festival. When Dan sends me the list of stuff that's streaming, as soon as I saw The Cove, I said, is that the documentary? And sure enough, it is. So check it out on Amazon. It's fantastic. It unfolds as a thriller, and it's really sensational. Three for you on Hulu. Al Gore had an update to his documentary, An Inconvenient Truth, which you can now see on Hulu. The sequel I've not seen came out this year, but if you're interested in environmental uh, climate change, you can see what Gore had to say back then, how it's changed now, this new movie. Dances with Wolves, which I'm recommending for my buddy Stugatz, who hates it. Uh, not like me because it beat Goodfellas, but because he said it's a very erroneous title. There are actually no Dancing with Wolves, and that's why he is so upset against that movie. Kevin Costner won an Oscar for it. And Ordinary People. Sometimes I will have a gripe against a movie just because it offends Marty. So for years, I used to always tell people that Ordinary People was trash because it beat Raging Bull. And then a few years ago, I actually watched Ordinary People. And it really is a beautiful film. It should not have beaten Raging Bull. Uh, but obviously, everything is subjective. And it's a beautifully made film by Robert Redford, who won an, an Oscar for Best Director. And Timothy Hutton plays a teenager there dealing with a tragedy. Really sensitive performance. I love Judd Hirsch. When my dad first emigrated from, from Pakistan to Canada, everyone said he looked like Judd Hirsch. Like 1970s Judd Hurst. It's funny what I'm watching. Like It's kind of like my dad who's playing the psychiatrist. Um, but he's excellent in the movie. Donald Sutherland, noted Canadian, plays the father of the movie. And Mary Tyler Moore, I guess at that time it would have been more instructive. If you were living in 1980 and had seen her in all of her shows and different incarnations, you know, America's Mom, she could not be more chilling and more villainous and so cold towards her son Hutton who's dealing with this uh, terrible tragedy. So it's a... A really powerful family film, Ordinary People, Sutherland, Moore, Hutton, Judd Hirsch. Never should have beat Raging Bull, but it is an excellent movie. So you should check it out. It's available on Hulu. A Scorsese story. As an addendum, Dan just recently saw Ordinary People, thought it was horribly overrated. Lem's also giving it two thumbs down, so maybe it's one to skip on Hulu. Yeah, it just doesn't hold up. That's all. I mean, like what you're saying about the film makes sense. There's a good message to it. The acting's great. Yeah. It's just, it's a very dated, early 80s film. Fair point. As long as you admit the acting ensemble's excellent. Scorsese's story, Dan had it prepared last time because it was battling strep throat. Uh, miraculous recovery, thanks to the amoxicillin and Dr. Maureen Morris. But now, Danny gets his time in the sun. Scorsese's story via Dan Stanzik. Okay, so I don't know how long ago it was. We'll call it four or five months ago. Adnan gives me a book on Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> and a few weeks go by. He's like, hey, did you read that 
that Leo book? And I, I say, no, I don't know. What Leo book? What are you talking about? He goes, I gave it to you the last time we taped the podcast. I'm like, I remember you. Give, did you take it with you? I don't know where it is. So this book disappears. We don't know where it is. I'd say about a month ago, I'm cleaning my desk here at work. I'm a very neat person. Let the record show. Very neat. Borderline OCD. That's how neat I am. And I'm cleaning my desk. And sure enough, the Leonardo DiCaprio book is there in a drawer that I don't use. So I bring it back to my apartment and I'm like, oh my God, Adnan has strep throat. I'm going to have to have this whole podcast ready. I got to get a Scorsese story. So let me open up this Leonardo DiCaprio book. It's called Anatomy of an Actor. It's a series that explores the 10 most iconic roles of famous actors. This one on Leo was done by a French journalist named Florence Columbani. Correct. Well done. Okay. So I, I'm like, all right, it's a book on Leo. But, but Scorsese's. Your two favorite actors you've told me are Denzel and Leo. Correct. So I was like, you know, you'll enjoy a book about Leo. But go yes. ahead. So they just pick 10 roles. So I'm like, all right, well, you know, Leo's worked with Scorsese a bunch. So I'll, do, I'll pick one where he worked with him and, and we'll find, hopefully we'll find a story. So I go to the aviator because they don't have the best roles. It's just it, they pick 10. I don't know how they pick them. But, you know, a lot of the films that, you know, Marty and Leo teamed up on weren't in there. But the aviator is. So 2004, it's a biopic, biopic. I go biopic, whatever. <laughs> Of Howard Hughes, the famous eccentric American film tycoon, industrialist, and someone who made and flew airplanes. You did say it right, by the way. There's biopic. Thank you. Go ahead. Um, what do you call a word that you can say two different ways? There's a lot of them. Yeah, because I heard Greedy say biopic once. And someone's like, you want He's to wrong. Call, yeah, like, you want to call it? It's not a biopic. Yeah. I know, but whatever. A lot of people do it, so it's fine. All right. Second film Marty and Leo ever worked on together. The first one was Gangs of New York in 2002. So this is apparently how the aviator came to be. Leo comes across a biography of Howard Hughes while he's filming the Titanic or just Titanic. The picture on the front of the book was Howard Hughes dressed in early 1920s aviator garb. And Leo kind of sees Hughes as a kindred spirit, so to speak. Gets famous after Titanic. A little closed off to the media. He brings the book to Michael Mann, who directed Heat, Last of the Mohicans, and The Insider, all films that we love here on the podcast. And Mann brings the book to John Logan to write the screenplay. Logan had had success writing the screenplay for Any Given Sunday and then Gladiator. So although he's involved for years on the project, Mann actually ends up passing on directing The Aviator because he had just done Ali and he didn't want to do another biopic. He instead chooses to direct Collateral with Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx. And so he calls Marty and says, do you want to direct The Aviator? So Marty said he had always wanted to stay away from the Hughes story because guys like his good buddy Steven Spielberg and Warren Beatty had expressed interest in it. But he was struck by the symbolism Hughes represented. And he also, he said, his flaw, the curse, so to speak, this is Marty talking about Hughes, his curse, so to speak, is the curse for all of us in terms of a nation, a country that acquires wealth like empires. I love studying ancient history and seeing how empires rise and fall. They sow the seeds of their own destruction, and I think that's what fascinated me. Ultimately, the story asks, is that the wave of the future for everyone? Nice. Well done. Good story. Did you know this or no? I did, yeah. You did, yes. Of course you did. No, no, but it was because I remember wondering, like, what was it about him that appealed to Marty? Because two things I love about The Aviator. One, for a guy who's obsessed with movies and film culture, you never have seen a movie where Marty shows someone making a movie, meaning he never did a story about Alfred Hitchcock and you know, whatever. So when you actually see Howard Hughes directing, it's great to see Scorsese showing a filmmaker, right? the ultimate filmmaker showing film in its early inception. And two... I remember seeing, especially the first half, I thought, I, I just don't get what the hook was for Marty. Like, what's, does he love Catherine Hepburn? Like, what is it about, like, he, I, he's not big in aeronautic, he hates flying, you know, he's just asthmatic, he's always been in New York. And then I remember, especially the second half, I go, oh, now I get it. Like, once the plane crashed, which is amazing, and all the OCD, I go, okay, now that's tapping into Marty with the OCD and the obsessiveness, and he loves obsessive characters and guys with big ambitions and big dreams. But that's what's amazing, I think, about The Aviator. If you told me that story about Howard Hughes, I'd say, Oh, Scorsese's he's directing it, it'll focus on like the latter half where he just went nuts and like he's, you know, bottles of urine all around him. If the aviator is actually a very optimistic, idealistic movie, it shows the rise of Howard Hughes. And in fact, the downfall is only the last 20 or 30 minutes. You know, Alan Alda plays a villain and you can tell he keeps repeating the future in the mirror. You can tell what the story's going. But I thought it was interesting that Marty focused on the positive for a change, which may be atypical of that filmmaker. But yeah, I remember the, the man origin of it. And they traded it. And the fact, I mean, Spielberg. Always wanted to do it. And, of course, Beatty made Rules Don't Apply, which came out last year, which was awful. He hadn't made a movie in forever. 
And then he finally makes his Howard Hughes movie, and it just sank like a stone. Like, nobody ended up seeing it. So, also speaking of Scorsese, a lot of people were tweeting me, they said, all right, what, have you seen this story about uh, the Joker? So, if you haven't seen it, <clears throat> the story was released saying that Scorsese is going to make a superhero movie, which you think, by the way, could be my brother's favorite movie of all time. But here's the thing. Right now, it's in talks to produce a potential Joker standalone film, which would be directed by Todd Phillips. Todd Phillips is the director of the Hangover movies and also did War Dogs, which Dan and I mentioned. You could definitely feel there's a Scorsese uh, element to it. So everyone's like, what do you think? I go, well, Marty's just producing it. And if you read the story, what he said was he's going to take a closer look at the script before he figures out his involvement. So there's many a time that a filmmaker will put their name on a project and hopefully it'll get funded and go from there. And if it's going to help finance, you go from there. But the reason that Phillips sought out Marty was because I want to make a Joker standalone film that has a lot of gritty Scorsese early feel to it. I want to make a Joker movie that feels like Taxi Driver. So let me call Marty and see what he's interested in. So the official story is there's a new DC movie where Affleck is playing Batman, Justice League coming out this November. There's also a standalone Joker film, which Affleck was going to star in and direct. Now he's just starring and he's not directing. And now there's this separate project, which would be a Joker movie not starring Jared Leto, but like a younger Joker on his early climb. And the thought would be they would try to somehow get the essence of Taxi Driver in New York, that element, which is why Todd Phillips included Marty. But I'm fairly certain. Scorsese will probably see the script. I'm like, yeah, okay, fine. You want to make the movie? Great. I'll put my name on it and go from there. It's not a Martin Scorsese film. So for the headline of being Scorsese's making a Joker movie, I'm like, hang on a second. The Irishman is first up. That's what he's filming right now. Ray Romano was just on with, with Neil Everett the other day talking about work with Pacino and De Niro. So that's the next two years. So by then, Marty's 77. If he, then he feels like, all right, I, I still think he's got a Sinatra biopic in him, which they've talked about for years. He wanted to make a Sinatra movie. And him and Leo have talked about another movie, Devil in the White City, which I read the book. They optioned that years ago. So I listen, if Scorsese makes a Joker movie and directed it, I'd be astonished. If he produces it, puts his name on it to help it get some funding, that may be more realistic. But thanks so much to Namdi Asimov. Thanks to the entire crew here of Cinephile, our special guests, Mike Dizenhoff, Rob Lemley as well, and to Dan Stanza contributing his own story. We'll be back next time. Like I said, fall movies coming now, so the good movies are starting to come out. I'm Adnan Verk. We'll see you at the movies. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.